And take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 3. Again, because the Lord has written this book, the Lord is infinitely wise. He's able, as He has, to write the book with an original reading audience and all the saints that have then come after, but even His infinite wisdom, to write it with you in mind today so that this is God's Word for you. Hear the word of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. All support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer in my house. There is neither bread or cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them. For what is his hands have done, sorry, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. 
In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the armlets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes and the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope, instead of well-set hair baldness, instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding, instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. Yeah, probably the passage we need to pray after reading, I'm assuming. Lord God, we thank you for your word. It's always good and useful and true. However, sometimes our hearts are unready to hear it. And so we ask that your spirit would be pleased, that he would be powerful in working within us. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I think it's becoming increasingly obvious and probably to the point where no longer contested that we live in a silly, silly time. We live in a fantastic time, and I don't mean that simply in the sense of the wonder of blessing or things of the sort, but we, we live in a irreality. We live in a time in which people are increasingly committed to trying to maintain the lie that we are our own gods and we rule our own lives. It seems like every day there's a new news story with some great new atrocity in our current cultural moment, with somebody refusing to kind of contemplate the realities of the world, instead living their own self-expression. I'd give example after example, but honestly, they're all so terrible, they violate all the principles I taught of what pulpit etiquette demands. What a terrible thing. We've arrived at a point as a culture where for me to illustrate the points I'm trying to make, I I can't even talk about what shows on the nightly news anymore. We live in the silliest of times. And I think perhaps... One of the bits of it that is the most silly, and I don't use that in the positive sense, the most ridiculous, the most pitiful, is the way in which our culture is trying to lie to itself, to ignore and redefine and reject the reality of sin. Isaiah chapter 3 is a dreadful chapter. It's good because God wrote it, but it's dreadfully hard. 
Because in this chapter, God's people are pulled from living a life of affluence and silliness, a life of ease, a life of just going about our business like nothing is any different. And we're drugged, kind of kicking and screaming by the Lord Himself into a clear and gripping and horrible portrait of what sin looks like. As we've talked about, Isaiah 1 through 5 is largely the uh, introduction to the book. Whew, what an intro, huh? He's laying out for us where the rest of the book is going to go and honestly spoiling it so that you don't leave the church for the next 10 months. It's many, many, many bad and difficult and dreadful realities presented to show the people of God that ultimate need for the Lord Jesus. This book, in so many ways, it almost functions like an encyclopedia of sin. Now, some of you are old enough in the room to remember an encyclopedia back when they actually existed. Some of us are old enough to remember in the room that when we were bored on a Saturday afternoon when it was raining outside and none of the other kids wanted to play, you could go to the encyclopedia and read for hours, seeing all of the different illustrations of the things that God had made. Oh, I want to learn about bridges. Here's what bridges look like. Oh, I want to learn about birds. Hear what birds look like. You you see it in kind of clear description, in clear picture, in clear illustration. So much of the book of Isaiah in chapter 3 is an encyclopedia on sin. It's taking all of the dark parts of our lives. It's taking all of the dreadful parts of our lives, the sins that we have committed and the consequences that have come from them and laying them out over and over and over and over again so that we are forced to live in the reality of a sinful and broken world. Our lies cannot hold up anymore. It's why, honestly, these passages are so hard. They're so emotionally demanding. Friends, it's fun to preach the happy passages. It's fun to stand up in front and say that the Lord loves you, He'll never leave you, and He'll never forsake you. And I'm saying that now. But so much of that doesn't make very much sense without seeing how dreadful sin actually is. How dreadful sin actually is. It's honestly part of why our culture is falling apart. We've tried to ignore the reality of sin and that just cannot happen. A culture, a person can't, can't handle that. We fall apart. Verses 1 through 7 Start uh, as, uh, well, 
Isaiah begins to put the application of what's taken place in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is held out a contrast between uh, the holy city that God is building. He's establishing His people. He's building His church. This is the type of world and land that God Himself is creating. This is what the church will be. However, end of chapter 2, the contrast is very great. We're not there yet. There's still brokenness, there's still deception, there's still evil in our hearts and in our hands, and chapter 3 kind of uh, turns it up to 11, so to speak. It, it gets more intense, more in our face, more awful. With 1 through 7 kind of presenting just the dread of a society that is living within sin, to see the consequences, the misery, the awfulness of sin. Behold, the Lord God of hosts. This is not just some random person working. This isn't some petty little ancient Near Eastern deity. This is the Lord God Himself dealing with sin with the consequence of it, even beginning with Jerusalem and Judah, his favorites, his people, those that he has placed his name upon, they have denied him, and here ultimately they will, well, temporarily be destroyed and then ultimately fulfilled in the church. God is taking away from Jerusalem support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. And uh, for many of us, we read that and be like, well, that stinks, I guess. I mean, I know, that's, I know what that feels like. I've been in the south when it has a quarter inch of snow and all the stores are empty. I, I know what it's like to run out of bread and water. And like, mm, I don't think you actually do. I don't think you actually do. Remember this uh, description here of God removing the supply of Judah and Jerusalem is in other parts of the Scriptures even presented so graphically as that they would starve so badly that ch- parents would eat their own children for sustenance. That pregnancy would become a plague because there's not enough food. It's the Lord's doing. It's showcasing the misery of sin. You see here, even with the culture itself being destroyed, look at who's taken away from the people. The entire society is collapsing. The mighty man and the soldier, these are the heroes. They're broken uh, ruins in the culture, the judge, the prophet, even, interestingly, throwing in evil illustrations of the diviner and the magician. The society has collapsed. In fact, actually, the society has collapsed so fully that governance itself has imploded. And who do you have ruling? You no longer have men and kings. You have boys and infants. You have children, the, 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 the childish lifestyle leading the nation. It's even doubled down on in verse 12 to say that it's infants and women, which proof of the destruction of that society. Verse 5, people will oppress one another. They will take advantage of one another. They will harm one another. There will be no judicial system that will prevent that, limit that, and promote safety. 
And I love how it even builds to the most horrible thing of all at the end of verse 5, that children will be disrespectful to old people. I love that. Boy, if that's not a damning condemnation on the world in which we live. That in this time in which God is writing, proof of the destruction of sin is that children will backtalk old people. We live in a world that wants to get rid of old people. Our nation to the north is doing it so rapidly, it's becoming one of the fastest growing causes of death amongst the aged. Kill them. Get rid of them. They're not helpful. They don't help us in any way. I mean, they're old. They're useless, right? What's being described in verses 1 through 7 is a culture of misery. It's a culture of misery. The, the, the entirety is so incompetent that when they need people to leave, they're just having to randomly draft people with no skill in anything. Hey, you've got a coat. <laughs> You're richer than the rest of us. You be king. You see, I, I appreciate what God is doing in His Word is that he, He's not going into kind of pretend mode where he ignores the reality of the ugliness of sin. But to address it in its form, in its function, in its complexity, to say that sin is evil, it's a violation of God's character, it's a violation of God's design for mankind, it's a violation of the image of God and other people, and it has catastrophic, miserable consequences everywhere. And a culture cannot survive it. I do humbly suggest, it's my conviction, I think this is one of the areas that the evangelical movement has failed in my lifetime. Is that we've been comfortable talking about sin, but we've been talk, comfortable talking about sin kind of in the generic in the ether almost, as a substance that you might get on you, but once I get it off, I'm good and I'm fine, and not actually speaking about it in the fullness of misery, in the fullness of the dread and life-altering consequences, in the fullness of how awful it makes a life. For those older in the room, I do think actually this is one area where the young folks in this church and in our culture are actually leading the way. They're not doing it biblically or beautifully even, but I do think they're, they're leading the way in a, in a cur- kind of courageous willingness to talk about these are the destructive consequences of sin in my life. Now, the problem is, by and large, our kind of current culture is saying, so therefore embrace me for it and, you know, kind of baptize my, my suffering and my misery. Don't give me any hope. Don't give me any future. Don't give me any call or command to change. But I do think there's an element of our younger generation being willing to address the brokenness, the misery of sin. Now, there's a, a natural temptation that uh, we might want to say, in fact, actually, I, this is one of my biggest fears in preaching this passage, is that some of you would walk away and say, boy, I see that in America. America and Israel, they're the same thing. Wrong. They're not. Really wrong. 
When you read the Old Testament and it says Israel, do not read America. Bad, bad exegesis, bad hermeneutics. Instead, actually, what's being illustrated here are the consequences of sin that flow from verses 8 and 9, a specific heart condition. What's happening in verses 8 and 9 in the hearts of these people that's producing this destroyed lifestyle? Verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen. Why? The Lord has done this. Why? What's the problem? Because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord Himself. They're defying His glorious presence. It's a, a people, specifically at this point in history, those that He has called according to His name, that rather than serving Him, they've set their hearts against Him. Rather than bowing before Him, rather than worshiping Him, rather than delighting in His glory, they have rejected Him. In verse 9, it tells us exactly how, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They, They don't look at the Lord with awe and with wonder and with obedience and with love and affection. They look at the Lord in hate. They look at the Lord in derision. They look at the Lord in scorn. And in fact, it's not even done in private. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. It's interesting, the heart that has produced this destruction is simply a heart that does not delight in God's presence, but rejects Him instead. With that rejection building from private derision and private scorn to increasingly public derision of the Lord God, increasingly public denial. Now, this is where I do suspect many of us make a mistake. As we listen to this part of the passage, we listen to this part of the sermon, it's easy for us to go, well, you know, Pastor Michael, that is really bad. I can't believe those people out there would do that. It is bad to deny the glory of the Lord. It is bad to reject the Lord in our heart. It is bad to look upon Him with scorn or with rejection. It is bad, and I can't believe they would do that. Remember where I started. We live in a culture that's trying to live in fantasy land that pretends that our sin doesn't exist. I mean, your sin exists because I can see it and you're a mess, but mine doesn't. I mean, I don't have any. It's not that bad. In fact, actually, all the bad things in my life are really just your fault. If we got rid of all y'all, I'd be fine, right? You see, that's what we do so easily in our heart where we begin to look at sin and we begin to look at the consequence of sin and we take it and make it external to myself in so many ways. Instead of being honest, instead of saying, look, I have here seven verses of destruction, I have two verses of the reason for that destruction, and though I might like to lie about it, sometimes my heart does this very thing. 
Sometimes, deep down in my heart, secretly and quietly inside, I resent him. I resent him for the hard things he's given me, or I resent him for the good things he's given me, but they're not enough. Deep down in my heart, I might resent him, not me, but you might resent him for your spouse, or your children, or your job. Deep down inside, we might bear that very quiet, very cold hatred towards our God because life isn't the way we want it to be. Now, because we call ourselves those good Christian people, I mean, we would never let that out. I mean, I would never tell you that in the pulpit in the middle of a sermon. But we're trying to do that very thing, perpetuate that lie. That sin isn't real, and when it is real, it's real for you, but it's not real in me. The problem is that sin, as we've often talked about, doesn't stay a, it doesn't do a very good job of staying self-contained. My favorite illustration, I use it all the time, you probably remember it, and it's the best ever. Sin is like handling a toddler a container of glitter. It's the best illustration ever, because where will that glitter be? Everywhere. You'll be brushing your teeth six months from now. I'm like, what on earth is in my toothbrush? It'll ev- Everywhere. We tend to think of particularly the sins, our own sins, those sins in our heart, we tend to think of them as kind of Rubbermaid containers or Tupperware containers like we would take our lunch in. We put it in, we seal it away, and our sin stays nice and tidy and self-contained in our heart, and I can store it away until I want to pull that sin out later, and I'll enjoy that sin then. And then when I'm done enjoying it, I'll put it back into the box, I'll seal the box tightly, and then store it away again. Friends, that's a lie. It's a deluded lie. That's not the the nature of sin. Sin is, again, like that glitter that just spreads everywhere. It goes everywhere. It's contaminating and influencing and altering and corrupting. These people, verses 8 and 9, they've rejected the glory of the Lord. They are proclaiming their sin publicly. It starts secret. It goes public. And the consequence of it is you begin to see the effects in verses 10 and 11 before the the passage really changes. 10, 11, and 12, tell the righteous that it will be well with them for they'll eat the fruit of their deeds. Yea, Christ will benefit his people in him. But 11 and 12, sin has consequences. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with the wicked for what his hands have dealt out. It'll be done to me. Sin is corrupting. It's destructive. Here is just an illustration, verse 12. It is an interesting one, kind of odd in the flow of the passage. It's really an odd verse. Isaiah gives an illustration of what it would look like for Judah and Jerusalem. Instead of being governed by wise kings with mighty soldiers and mighty men, instead they're governed by infants, ruled and oppressed by them. They have women for their leaders. The people who should be giving them wise counsel lead them astray. A nation that is lost. 
That should be enough that I could finish the sermon on sin right there and we could jump to Jesus and it'd be fun, right? Yay, sin is bad, it destroys my life, I want Jesus. Passage doesn't stop, so the sermon's not going to either. Verses 1 through 12 largely focus on sin from our experiential perspective. It focuses on the consequences of sin from our experiential perspective. A nation that implodes, a society that implodes, a life that implodes. In verse 13, everything changes. Because it shifts from our experiential perspective to God's. It shifts to let us know how he thinks of sin. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the people. Suddenly, we've been transported from Jerusalem and Judah into the very throne room of God, the courtroom of God. And what will God himself do to sin? The Lord will enter into judgment, verse 14, with the elders and the princes of his people, those governors who have been abusing this nation. And does he say, hey, guys, you tried hard. You're a man of your time. You tried hard. I'm proud of you. No. It's you. It's you. It's you that have devoured the vineyard. It's you that have destroyed the poor. It's you that have crushed my people. It's you that have taken my people and put them on the grinding stone and just ground them to a pulp. It's you. You are the sinner. You are the problem. Declarative. And I like this because here we get to see kind of from the Lord's perspective, He cuts through all of the lies. He cuts through all of the fantasies and the illusions. He cuts through all of the pretend. He cuts through all of the kind of southern politeness that we use to weaponize to stab somebody in the back later. I know this, I've grown up in the south. It cuts through all of the things we use to pretend to be good people when we're actually not. And instead lays our sin out before us. This is explained in other parts of the scriptures where it says things like the Lord knows the secret parts of the heart of man. Or the Lord sees our hearts like they're laid out before him where he can read them and see them and observe them. Or that even the the darkness is not dark to the Lord. He can see the unseeable. He can know the unknowable. He knows your sin. And he hates it. That's actually where verse 16 through the end of the chapter goes. That's awful, awful, awful verses where here the Lord describes what his wrath looks like. Now, it's hard to describe wrath well. I don't know if you've ever tried that. Like, have you ever been so angry that you try to explain your anger? Like, I'm so angry, I could, and you have to explain it via what you're willing to do. I'm so angry, I could explode. Right? I'm so angry, I could yell. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so angry, I could... Uh. Well, that's what verses 16 through 26 are. The Lord is so righteously and wholly angry, angry at sin, he gives us a couple of word pictures as to what he's going to do. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they're proud. They walk with outstretched necks. Again, that's 
Um, noses in the air might be more of what we would say today. Glancing wantonly with their eyes and, and seducing those around them. Uh, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. I love that little illustration. Uh, these are, again, silly people whose sin has influenced them such that they're just flitting around pursuing evil. And while their life is filled with the frivolity of sin, verse 17, destruction follows. The Lord strikes at the very thing they're using for their sin, in this case, their beauty and their sexuality. Verse 17, the Lord strikes at that. Verse 18, we get this laundry list of what he's going to just strip away from them with this idea of all of the good and the grand and the great of their kind of moment in time and in life will be destroyed as the consequences of sin. So that verse 24, you're left with this kind of gross contrast of what in verse 16 is described as this beautiful young woman in verse 24 actually has much more of the appearance of a corpse. So angry he could destroy them. Friends, I... I think passages like this are incredibly important for us as we contemplate the reality of the Christian experience. Because I'm going to be candid with you. I like to minimize my own sin. I don't like to make a big deal of it. And I'm going to be candid with you. I know you do the same thing. I've been your pastor long enough to know And I know my own heart well enough to know that we are a people that like to make our sins small and the sins of others against us very big. Right? I mean, think about it. Be honest with yourself. When you think about the things that you have done wrong, you like to minimize it. I mean, it's not even a lowercase s. It's the font behind my head here for the Bible. It's so tiny, you can barely even see it. But when somebody else sins against us, wow, it's like 88-point font. We turn it huge, don't we? We're minimizing sin and making a small thing of it. And I suspect that there are a number of different consequences for this or coming from this, I'm sorry. One, by minimizing the reality of sin, it leaves us being the kind of people that have to pretend that we have tidy lives. If sin is a a lowercase s thing, if it's a small point font sort of thing, it leaves us being the kind of people that have to pretend like our lives are neat and tidy and all put together. Because if sin isn't a big deal, whose fault is it? Your life's a mess. It just means because you're incompetent. You're just bad at life. (laughs) I mean, maybe you might be. I am at parts of it, that's for sure. But instead, actually, what it does is it creates not just out there a lie that sin doesn't matter, but it then perpetuates a lie in here that sin doesn't matter. That it's overlooked, that it's ignored, that it's kind of minute and not serious. And when we do that, what we end up creating is a culture that says we have to look like we're good people on the outside 
And then we have no mechanism to explain why we're absolutely destroyed on the inside. And the incongruence between those two things makes us crazy. We look the part. We sometimes might even act the part. But there's no explanation for why we cannot feel the part. Because we're minimizing sin. We're, we're minimizing the fact that our hearts are not yet fully cleaned of the lingering corruption of this destruction. And further, and I suspect equally as catastrophic, perhaps even more so, is that when we take this idea of sin and we reduce it to such a small font, it makes it very easy to reduce Christianity to a list of how we have to behave. Instead of constructing our entire world around the idea that we get to have a conversation with God in Christ Jesus. That it reduces this Christian experience to a list of do's and don'ts, to a list of what I may and what I must not do, or things like that, instead of building a robust and rich and full understanding that I may know God and He know me, but not the way that He's going to know these people in verses 13 and following. that I may know God, but not as the, the victim of His wrath, that I may know God, but not as the object of His judgment, that I may know God, but not as the one who's being destroyed, having everything taken from them, that I may know God as, verse 10, the righteous, and that it will be well with me. And the answer, obviously, Mentioned at the beginning, our entire order of worship is built around it. The answer is the free offer of the gospel. Now, friends, we, we don't have to ignore sin. We don't minimize sin. We don't turn a blind eye to sin. We're not afraid to talk about the negativity of sin. We're not afraid to discuss it, even in its fullness or the consequences of it. We, we're not afraid to talk about how it works out in our lives. That's the vast majority of my counseling ministry, Brandon's as well, is talking about the effects of sin in our lives. But the remedy has never changed. It has always been a hope in God's promises that He alone can make right that which we cannot. It's always been a hope in His promise that He will take care of us when I cannot. That He will make well when I will not. That His ability would surpass my inability. That's where Isaiah is going to head really through the rest of the book is laying out this terrible picture of sin and saying, but friends, God still promises a solution. Isaiah is in the Old Testament and so that solution is presented in foreshadowing and illustrations. We have the suffering servant, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. 
But Isaiah doesn't have the New Testament yet, so he's promising that, that God will make it right, that God will make it right, and he will make it right in a man. But he doesn't yet have the full story that God would make it right, not just in a man, but in his own beloved son, the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant to come. The promise of God, the one who would redeem for himself a people, the one who would restore all of the brokenness of sin, he would step inside time and space. He would be indeed the very second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God. And he would make all things right. This is beautiful, really, because of the contrast that this passage presents Verses 1 through 7, they lay out for us the miseries of sin. And interestingly, when Jesus shows up, He tells us that we, redeemed in Christ, will be those that grieve and mourn those miseries. But He will even use them because He loves us. Verses 8 and 9 showed us this glimpse into the ugly heart of a sinner. And Jesus says, I will forgive you and change that heart. Taking it out, giving a new one, and in fact even sanctifying it to get rid of so many of those ugly longings. Verses 10 and 11 and 12, we saw just the messiness that begins to unravel in our lives around us. And the Lord promises that in Christ, even those things we do see some progress in. And all because of what happens in verses 13 through 26. That the Lord who is the judge, that the Lord who is the one who will destroy sinners, is the same Lord who destroyed His Son on my behalf. You see, this is the reality, is that when we make sin a small thing, a small font, we forget that it's so serious to God that it cost him his son. And many of us in the room are parents. How big of a problem would it be, would it take, for you to give up the life of your child for it? I'm going to suggest it would not be a size six font problem. We all love our kids too much. It would be cosmic which is exactly what God has done. I would end briefly with this challenge for us all. Maybe let's stop ignoring sin. Let's stop forgetting about it. Let's stop pretending that it's not there. Let's stop minimizing it and instead together, people of God, let's go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Let's go to Christ Jesus and ask for Him to change us. Let's go to the Lord Jesus and ask for Him to to take that new heart that He's given us and to grow it in godliness. Let's go to Jesus and ask Him to make us different. So that perhaps we might not need to live in quite as much misery as chapter 3 presents. And so that specifically verse 8, we might Joy, his glorious presence instead of defy it. And if you're not a Christian in the room, I, I don't know. 
I can't see your heart. God can. If you're not a Christian in the room, friends, the the offer stands for you as well. You don't have to live like this forever. The Lord Jesus offers. Forgiveness is free to you. It cost Him everything. If you confess your sins and believe in Him, He's faithful to forgive, to redeem, and to cleanse. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our sins. We love them so dearly. Oh God, would you instead fill us with Christ Jesus. Would you fill us with your Spirit. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.